Sure. I'll talk it out. Yeah. Let's just have a conversation. Track three. Better not be fucking Dave Matthews band. Okay. Those of you who don't want to be a part of this can leave now. Derek, please listen to me. But if you choose to stay, which it seems like you guys are choosing. Derek, please. You understand and agree to the following terms and conditions. Derek! One. Derek, this is the virus. You talking. hereby waive your right Derek, please. to your own personal bodily integrity. This is not you. Two. I'm a per the state versus Neville Reed, my colleague and I will not be held criminally liable for any felony or misdemeanor that you may be a victim of, including, but not limited to, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, disorderly conduct, destruction of property, mayhem, and first-degree murder. And three, terms and conditions may change or be updated whenever the fuck I want! Consider yourselves notified. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. What was that rocket? What rocket? I was just in my office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? everyone dj anubis here with you metal tavern radio podcast episode 161 continue to forge on without my partner neko for the time being but she will be back soon enough but in the meantime i will hold down the fort and bring you the goodness that is heavy metal and everything in the metal genre as well as entertainment news and news bits and whatever i find fucking interesting how about that? Anywho, uh, a lot of good stuff to get to today. Brand new stuff from Nomos. Yes, my boys, my boys. Uh, Razor Rape also got Extinction AD. Uh, Werewolves, brand new stuff from Al Namrud. Dark Funeral. 
and much, much more as well. Some different topics I got coming your way. A few things about music, a little bit about shocks, shocks, and a little bit of thing about uh, movies and stuff like that. So as normal, right? Uh, speaking of movies, uh, if you have not been on our YouTube channel recently, uh, I did a review for the Ty West feature film X, uh, which I went to see earlier in a week and gave a review of that, as well as my top five modern era horror film directors. And Ty West made that list. I'll also be talking about another one in the list later in the show. Um... But, we're going to get right into it, though. Sounds good, right? Got some assumption uh, provided by Everlasting Spew Records. Razor Rape, as I discussed earlier. And as also discussed earlier, brand new stuff from Nomos. This is called Exile, dude. And these motherfuckers will have a new record out very soon. I think, what is it, March? So we'll probably have this in either late April or early May, I believe. I'm guessing more early May, but... I just pre-ordered my fucking uh, vinyl for this record. It's going to be fucking nice. Because it's limited also. Yeah. Now if they can just put it on a fucking cassette, I'll buy that shit too. Alright, here's Nomas. Without further ado, Exile. Enjoy. I'll be back.
Century provides great commentary when both having a special guest on his shows as well as the collaborations with the big teddy bear, that fat samurai guy. So if you want to keep it raw, real, tune into the Sci-Fi Century. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-E-N-T-R-Y. Sci-Fi Century. Tune in to get the best in science fiction and Godzilla-related information. Peace. We are back, and I uh, got a little bit of something special for you. So, perusing YouTube earlier today, I came across uh, something that's called Gibson TV. Now, it's all about, of course, Gibson guitars and instruments and stuff. And uh, there's a new show uh, that's being promoted on it. it's on YouTube. I believe it's free. I don't think. I mean, I watched it for free anyway. Uh, it's called Metal and Monsters, and so the host, basis for Rob Zombie's band, Matt Montgomery, uh, is the one that's going to be hosting these shows, and he did this first episode uh, called Metal and Monsters, and basically in this first episode, he's talking with both Robert England and Don Dawkin, and honestly, the topic is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And uh, there's three segments uh, for the interview. It's broken up by videos that uh, Matt's playing, and there's also other little segments I got going on dealing with metal and monsters, just side things uh, outside of the interview they're doing. Uh, I took a clip, uh, one segment, the second segment, which is 10 minutes. Uh, I didn't want to take the whole thing because it wouldn't be right to do that. But I took the second one because it was probably the most interesting part of it for me. Uh, but I wanted to share it with you a little bit and let you hear it a little bit and see what it's about. And I thought it was really cool. You know, Montgomery's able to get both of these guys in the same room. They hadn't seen each other in quite a while since that 
I mean, I guess they said they saw each other probably a couple of years ago at a Comic-Con, but uh, prior to that, they probably hadn't seen each other since they actually shot the video for Dream Warrior. So, uh, But it's about 10 minutes, and I'm going to share with you. But one of the things I liked about it, too, was, uh, you know, the cool thing about Dream Warriors for me, and I wish I could have been involved with their discussions on this because they kind of touched on some of it, but watching Dream Warriors for the first time after watching Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 2 was we started to see where Freddy Krueger's humor started to take over. He started he started doing the whole Arnold Schwarzenegger thing, dropping one-liners uh, on his kills and, you know, welcome to prime time, bitch. Uh, shit like that, right? So that was cool on that level. Then, of course, the soundtrack. You're, I know I'm in the theater watching this and I'm like, Oh, fuck. They're playing Dawkins. Fuck yeah, dude. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, when the video came out for Dream Warriors, like, you know, and watching Robert England portray Freddy in that, they, of course, had the band integrated into the the, the footage that they were shooting for Nightmare on Elm Street. So, even though it wasn't really part of the movie, it sort of was. They find a way. It wasn't, like, CGI, I don't think. It was just... They found a way to integrate the you know the band into that movie still each piece. How they did it, I can't tell you. I don't know. Uh, they'd probably break it down far better than I ever would. But I just remember so much about the film because it was the first time where you know we all know Nancy from the first one was able to defend herself in the dream, like she was the one fighting back. But she was bringing Freddy into her world. Nightmare on Elm Street was different. It was like, once you get into Freddy's world, you can still be whatever the fuck you want to be. And so, you know, he had one kid who was in a wheelchair. You know, his fantasy when going into Dreamland was he could walk and that he was a wizard. Uh, another one was a chick was, you know, like a real badass chick with switchblades and a mohawk. Uh, you know, no fear. Now, granted... Freddy's the ultimate manipulator in the dream world, so for every person who tries to take their dreams under their own control, Freddy's always there to kind of cut the legs out from underneath them. But that was the cool thing about Dream Wars is that it, it finally kind of gave you the ability as the victims to fight back in a way that you wouldn't normally think. So watching the video for Dream Warriors, you've got this band who is aligning themselves with the kids, you know, the Patricia Arquette and the rest of the cast, uh, fighting against Freddy. So, you know, you have, you know, one instance where George Lynch shows up with his guitar with the skulls on it, and he's playing his solo, and, you know, first Patricia Arquette's character is, like, kind of scared of him, but then realizes he's a good guy. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, the band is playing, you know, the end of Dream Warriors, and, like, Freddy Krueger can't take it because of the noise. And then there's that iconic scene at the end where Freddy wakes up in his bed, and he's got, like, a little doll with him. He's like, ah, what a nightmare. Who were those guys? And then it's just really fun about it. Now, it's probably about, when did this come out, like, 87, 88, somewhere in there? Uh... But yeah, you know, I just I just remember being so great. Maybe I might have been in the late '89, maybe because uh, Dream Warriors ended up showing up on uh, Back for the Attack, a Dawkins album. That was like an added bonus track at the time. 
But uh, yeah, here's a 10 minute interview. It's the second part, so they've already done one part and they have a third part after. But I just I, I wanted to take a piece of this and let you all hear it. Uh, just so you can get a taste of what's going on with this particular show. I'd be interested to see what Montgomery and Gibson TV does down the road because it's a very interesting thing to do. Because as metal fans, we know that metal and horror kind of go together for a long time. Uh, it has for a long time. And so who knows what else that Montgomery is going to touch on going forward. So this is a great starting point. And uh, here, check it out for yourselves. When Nightmare One hit cable, I said, Dad, can I stay up and watch this? And as soon as Tina met her demise, go to bed. Yeah. That was, that was the tipping point. Some shots from that day that never made it in the movie. And one of them, the camera girl, first assistant, married to the DP, Jacques Heitken. And they couldn't give the camera to Amanda Wiss, who played Tina, because she's not union. So... Amy took her jeans off, they put stage blood on her legs, she took her shoes off, she did handheld, and I dragged her on the ceiling, and she filmed the Tina point of view, being dragged by Freddie. Now, of course, when you cut oh away, and you see the, the boyfriend down below looking up at the ceiling, you see no Freddie. Right. It's what she sees in her dream, it makes it even That's more clever. clear. Let her do the POV. But Wes shot that so that he could use that footage so that he could get other nasty bits in the movie that he wanted to get in. He just did that as an extra to show the censors. Uh, wow. And at the end of it, I dropped her legs. And being the actor that I am, I realized I had stage blood all over the Freddy blades of the Freddy claw, and I gave her a kiss of death. Like that. And the stage blood between my blades caught into a blood bubble and floated out <laughs> and I actually saw it yeah it was just an amazing moment of course wow. they it's way too hardcore to use oh my um, god but uh, it, so dad was right to send you to bed so when nightmare 3 came out it was a couple of years later I'm snipping ads out of the paper for weeks ahead of time back when they would hype it up here comes Friday full page ad the Houston Post and I'm like, please take me to the theater. And he did. And I was blown away. I How old are you? I, I was, what, 87? So I was 12. Yeah. Jeez. I fell in love with Patricia Arquette immediately. Obviously, the Oscar-winning Patricia Arquette. Yeah, right. as we all did. Lest we forget. Yeah. Uh, I fell in love with you. And I fell in love with you. All in the same night, whoever was the marketing guy for New Line who said, you know what, the kids need Freddy Krueger and a, a really ripping metal band that can, where you're singing and there's a song and there's like, I mean, you guys were the coolest. Somebody knew what they were doing and hit me right on the head with it. And I went, I'm in. I'm in. So the next day I'm making a Freddy glove out of a golf one of my dad's golf gloves in the garage, <laughs> playing your records that my brother had. And I'm like, where's that? Where's that? You know you have that band. I was in. Well, like, you know, direct the, you, hit. somebody at New Line had their fingers on the pulse of America and, and picked a lot of great groups. I know we have Goo Goo Dolls. There's a lot of oh, people yeah. played on the soundtracks after the success of Dokken because they knew then. And it was just this 
uh, I don't know if it was a happy accident or just this meeting of the minds, but putting driving rock and roll, you know, with a horror movie is just a match made in heaven or a match made in hell. Right. Yeah. But How did that come they about? realized that. I don't think there was like, people in the horror movies are probably just into goth metal or slash metal, right. but it wasn't true. No. You know, the song we did, that's the only song in my career that they've all ever told me what the chorus is. I didn't get to write it. They said, okay, the movie's called Dream Warriors, so you have to write a song, and it has to have Dream Warriors, the word, Dream Warriors, as a chorus. I'm like, well, I write my own lyrics, and I write my own music. I've always written. We've never, all our songs are written by us. We don't go outside. So I said, so I have to use the word Dream Warriors? They go, yeah. I said, ah, okay, I guess. So we kind of split camps. And they, the other boys actually wrote the one that ended up in the movie. And I went off to my studio and wrote another version of Dream Warriors, but it was more up-tempo, more rock. You know, ours is more dark. Yeah. Dream Warriors. Mine was like, Dream Warriors. We can be heroes inside of our dreams. It was way up-tempo. So we had two versions, gave it to the label. You decide which song. I did my thing, I'm stepping out. So they came to you and said, we need a song, you're the guy. But it has to be the words Dream Warriors in the chorus. Wow. But that's kind of hard, so I'm like, well, I don't know where to put it. You know, I mean, I have to think about this. So lucky for me, Robert was done, and they filmed the movie. So they sent me the, uh, you know, the ones with the timelines going yeah. on, the, the ruck. They gave me some roughs where you see the time codes going by. and. So I got to see snippets of the movie. So I just took the whole movie and took little scenes and put lyrics. Wow. Here's an interesting link, I, I, I think. You remember the, uh, the story about the New York screening of Asphalt Jungle with a song Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley in the comments. And opening day, matinee, all teenagers, but they had never heard rock and roll played that loud before. Nah. It, the op opening of the movie, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock, and it's giant, voice of the speaker, speakers on either side, uh, you know, on Broadway, 42nd Street. Kids were dancing before the opening titles were finished. Dream Warrior, Dream, War uh, Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. I saw that in the theater. Again, those kids, when they heard Dawkins, come through those giant theater speeches. Yes. That just rocked their world. And that's a link, I think. That's a, a, a thing that, that really solidified the whole soundtrack of Dream Warriors. What yeah. really made it special, too, was the fact that you were in the video. It wasn't just footage cut into the band's video, but the fact that you guys were together. Together. No, no, there was no deep fake. There was no right. cutting away from him. Robert did his thing and left. and. 
We came, we were all in the same set together. That was so powerful to a kid because it told the kid, in a weird way, we care about you. We want you to have this experience. Like it was, it was, I liken it to like Star Wars and action figures. You know, it was like, here, we thought about you. Now you can carry Luke Skywalker in your pocket. There was this association to you through the band that if you liked one or the other, you found the other one. And it was, the, it was just the coolest thing. And I think it's a much more natural meeting. They also had me do a video with the Fat Boys, an early I remember. video. Yeah. And this was far more successful. But you know, when I think back, Don, to that day, we were deep, deep, deep San Fernando Valley, Santa Clarita, yep. on, a, on a converted uh, uh, industrial building then made into a sound stage. And I got to go in and out. I got to go in and out, and they thought of new things to do with me. And I'd go back to the green room and have a beer, you know. Those guys were on that cold concrete for 12 hours. And That's I fun. remember, and Don just said it again backstage here, but I remember, you guys got leg cramps. Yeah, we're getting cramps. Yeah. God. I go, can I have a chair? Yeah, I'm young. I go, I need to just sit down for a minute because we're all wearing like cowboy boots. And, and it was boots. cold concrete. Freezing our, and it was wood. cold. Yeah. And remember, they had no food. For yeah. us, I mean, they're like, we're out in the middle really? of nowhere. And they brought some pizzas, they're stone cold. We took a break. Robert came and sat down. <laughs> and he took, I remember you having a bite of pizza, and like part of your prosthetic yeah. started coming off. And I was like, uh, Robert, your face is falling <laughs> off. And he was trying to eat carefully, and he goes, I'm not, because it came off. I think Olive it was like oil destroys the glue. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I've got a George story. Not from when we shot the video. But I, I work in Japan, you know, publicity, and, and, and when we did Nightmare 5, I did television shows, I did talk shows, I, I did a, a version of their Odd Couple, you know, guest starred uh -huh. on it. And while I was there, I, did a, uh, I was doing some radio and some interviews, and uh, somebody was doing a, a kind of like a music blog thing, only they didn't call it that then. But he was sort of hip and younger, and, and, and real rock and roll, and he said, you gotta go to this park in Tokyo, Mr. England. You gotta check this park out, you'll love it. And he wrote me down the directions. The first thing I see is there's a whole bunch of Elvis Presleys, and it's Japanese cosplay. It's young Japanese men and teenagers in complete costume play, makeup, hair, wigs, wardrobe, and it's perfect. And there's old Elvis, there's young Elvis, there's fat Elvis, <laughs> you know, there's rockabilly Elvis. Wow. And then a little further, there's a whole bunch of guys doing Prince. Mm. And then a little bit past that is Mike, they're all Michael Jackson. Thriller, the red jacket, the perfect hair. And then I look down in the corner, and there's a half a dozen Georges. <laughs> <laughs> and it's George after the haircut, you know. Yeah. When you get the blonde and the top. But it's a little shorter, yeah. and he's all black, you know, and he's got the motocross skin-tight jacket on and the skinny black leather jeans. Amazing. And they love that look. It's sort of, it's almost like George is a hybrid Joan Jett at that moment of time. Yeah. Right, yeah. He got famous in Japan long before he broke out in America. Really? We went to Japan in 82. Wow. After breaking the chain. 82. We go to Japan. I was stunned.
everyone, this is Blake from Pig Destroyer, Hate Beak, and Zealot R.I.P. And you are listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko at Metal Tavern Radio. Get into it now. Alright, brand new stuff from Werewolves. I hate, therefore I am. DJ Anubis here. Getting ready to talk a little bit about my favorite director right now in horror, Panos Cosmatos, who, if you don't know, directed Beyond the Black Rainbow as well as Mandy, and uh, he's probably like the hottest thing for me going on right now in terms of like horror and aesthetics and visuals and soundtracks. Like the first two films he's done with uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy have been amazing, and. I've talked about it at length, you know. Nicolas Cage, I love him to death. Uh, Maddie's a very good film. Um, it's not as good as Beyond the Black Rainbow for me, but uh, still a very good film. But, you know, it's just Cage being Cage. Like, you know, I expected when Cage did that film how it was going to turn out because I just know that's how Cage is. He's crazy. He can do crazy shit. What I really do appreciate about Nicolas Cage, though, is that over the course of the last five or six years he's done a lot more independent stuff a lot more independent directors like panos and he's trying to help you know give these guys some uh notoriety and people to pay attention to what they're doing so that's even though i knew who panos was before mandy uh it helped that you know panos is kind of branching out with these actors who are willing to take risks and do films with him and so I don't have a lot to add other than the fact that he was number one on my list when I talked about how I did uh, my top five horror directors of the modern era after the uh, X review. Uh, so he is working on a third film right now, and he likes to do the weird stuff. Uh, you know, he leans that way more. He's teaming up with A24, who I believe also just did X. Uh, the film's going to be called Necrocosm. And it's spelled uh, N-E-K-R-O-K-O-S-M. And it just basically, the, the details are very minimal in terms of what we know. But from what little they did tell me in this article, it, it's a pair of lovers in a strange galaxy that are separated by an invasion. So I don't know what exactly all that means in the long run. Uh, but it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a, a combination of sci-fi horror, so this will be very cool. Um, if you have never checked out uh, Cosmatos' films, do so. Uh, he's he's very very good. Like you just in terms of like aesthetic and visuals and, and the sound, like for Beyond the Black Rainbow, man, like it just blew me away just how good the soundtrack was as well as the visuals. Uh, and Mandy the same thing like Mandy the biggest thing for me was the soundtrack and visuals not so much the story that was going on uh, the story is okay it's very cool obviously but uh, again not compared to Beyond the Black Rainbow but which is a little more original for me there but the visuals and stuff that the way that Panos is able to get this kind of trippiness going on with his films is very cool like I'm 51. I don't really do drugs anymore. I mean, I've eat a pot cookie here and there, as you know. But back when I was in my teens and 20s, you know, I dabbled in acid and stuff like that. And 
this is the, these are the kind of films that if I was still young and doing that kind of shit, I would, I would sit and watch these because it'd be such a mind fuck. And I don't know about the rest of you all if you guys dabble in that shit or not, but if you want some crazy looking films to watch while doing acid, these are the films to do it because it, it will. You probably wouldn't be able to. You can't. You can barely follow it when you're sober. Okay. So try doing it when you're on fucking some sort of a drug or whatever. And I'm not promoting drugs or anything, but, you know, again, I can't control what people do out there. But certainly uh, people who do weed and everything else. So, yeah, if you have never checked out his work, I highly, highly recommend it. I know I'm not, like, the best podcast person in the world. I know that there's other podcasters and YouTube personalities that have kind of have a much better skill at this than I do. Uh, I readily admit that. Uh, I still, you know, obviously I want people to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I want people to check out our podcast of Neko and I and the music stuff and our website. And You know, I know we're not the best at it, we're, but, you know, this isn't really our day job either. Like, you know, even though I am more honed in on the metal stuff and the music than she is, uh, you know, I'm trying. You know, I'm trying because I care about the music. I care about the scene. I care about all you who want to hear about stuff that you don't know about. So if I say check out this dude and I'm not explaining myself the best way possible, I apologize for that, but definitely check shit out that I recommend because uh, especially if I really like it. You know, there's stuff that I haven't liked that I'm like, okay, Make your own determination. Check it out. And if you like it, then great. If you don't, that's fine, too. Same thing here. But I, I just... I think you really dig his stuff. So if you've never seen his work, go check it out. Uh, we're going to get into some black metal here before we get to the rock block. And I've got some new stuff from Dark Funeral as well as Ago, Agatha Damon, uh, who hasn't put out stuff in quite a while. Uh, but we're going to kick off some Alden Amrud. And I've, this band, I believe, is from Iraq or Israel, one of those two. I think it's Iraq. Um, it's been a little while since they put some stuff out. I remember a friend of mine, probably almost a decade ago, introduced me to him. Uh, so I've been kind of following him over the years, and so they've got a new record out. And this particular track, it was provided by Against PR, actually, and uh, it's called Protector of the Herd. <laughs>
Jump into our rock block. Today, brand new stuff from Animals as Leaders. New dog fashion disco. Got uh, Xavier Abasher, provided by Bad Dog Promotions or Records. I think it's Promotions. Uh, Muddy Moonshine, provided by Inverse Records. Brand new stuff from Cryptograph. And uh, Evenflow is going to kick us off. That's provided by Hard Life Promotions. So... Here we go all, the rock block is beginning. Uh. 
Everybody, this is Mr. Joshua Gray, your live gameplay DJ, live weekday mornings, every day, but hump day, playing Mortal Kombat or other games occasionally and featuring a number of different artists. So come on by, grab your breakfast, and enjoy some fatalities. Mr. Joshua Gray on YouTube, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 8 to noon to the moon. And you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Don't put them down this air again. It's reserved. 
What's up, everyone? This is Richie from Grave Huffer, and you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Rank it the fuck up. All right. Animals as leaders closing out our rock block today. And I'm going to talk a little bit about sharks. Sharks, man. Sharks. Uh, so, over time, like, since I was young and, you know, my fascination with sharks in general, whether it's movies or real-life attacks, you if you've been on my YouTube channel, you saw a few weeks back, I <clears throat> went to great length about one of the attacks in Australia and, you know, had the shocking footage of the body in the water and whatnot. Um, but one of the things I've always kind of pointed to, which whenever I'd watch, like, you know, Shark Week on Discovery Channel and watched how they've tried to... And this isn't to discredit scientists and those who are trying to preserve sharks and, you know, protect them and everything else. However, there is a bit of what I would call misinformation that they're kind of pushing out there in terms of a bias uh, and an agenda that they're trying to get across to, to save these animals. And that is, they try to push this, this notion that when people are attacked, that it's a mistaken identity. And to some degree, that might be the case. But in most cases, it's not. Uh, we have to understand that sharks in general are predators. They're carnivores. And uh, while they do have a certain diet that they like, so for like the great white and other large, you know, uh, sharks, they want like seals, sea lions, uh, whale carcasses, shit like that. Because of the fatty diet, and, you know, within the, the whales and uh, seals themselves, but it doesn't mean that sharks, when hungry enough, won't eat you. And that's kind of the funny thing that whenever you watch Shark Week and they start doing these drama citations about uh, shark attacks, and they usually only focus on ones where people have actually bitten and survived or friends have seen them but you know the bodies were dead when they got them on shore very i don't think i've ever seen shark week ever addressed the, the times when the shark just takes the entire body and it's gone like they can't find it and whenever they do try to push that they try to say that oh well if a, if a person is consumed it's because they drowned and the shark ate them or you know the person was already dead by the time it got consumed well that's not always the case. And on sharklab-malta.org, uh, a gentleman named Sharkman on there uh, does interviews with random scientists and researchers and people like that who, fo you know, their main focus is on sharks and all the stuff that I just talked about. And one of the guys they talked to is Ralph Collier, who they did an he did an interview with. And... He gets into uh, 
a part of the interview where he asked uh, Ralph about mistaken identity. And I thought Ralph did a good job answering uh, the question. Uh, the first part, he's like, I think mistaken identity is a valid motivation for some great white shark attacks on humans, but not nearly as many as you were lead to believe, led to believe. Having said that, I feel I must explain a little more in detail. So what Ralph does, he goes talking about the origins of the mistaken identity, how uh, for a long time it was considered uh, something to do with great whites and humans because the one thing that often gets pushed is about how humans on surfboards or in diving suits uh, look like sea lions or seals, like the silhouettes and everything else. One thing that Ralph brings up, though, which is a great, great point, and I'll see if I can find it here real quick, is he says, Originally, the hypothesis was only applicable, applicable to attacks by great white sharks on humans. It was thought that the attacking great white shark had mistakenly identified a human for a pinniped. Several preliminary research reports of great white shark predatory attacks on marine animals from this same geographic area seem to support this hypothesized motivation. However, there are many cases that Dan and I investigated in which we did not believe the motivation had been mistaken identity. Today I've heard mistaken identity also used as the reason or motivation for a bull shark attack on a swimmer off Florida. It was reported that the shark had mistaken the swimmer's foot for a leg for a fish. Um, he also goes on to say that uh, sharks don't always bite humans because they mistake them for natural prey. Pinnipeds are seldom found in the stomach context of the short fin mako shark. Yet this species has been implicated in attacks on humans. There are more than two dozen species of sharks that have been implicated in attacks on humans and more than are considered potentially dangerous. Since the majority of my research has involved the great white shark, that will be the species that this discussion will center on. In order for a human to be mistaken for a pinniped, either water visibility must be negligible or the shark's vision very poor. In the case of the great white shark, not only do they have excellent visual acuity, they also have the ability to see colors. In fact, according to our friend and esteemed colleague Rick Martin of ReefQuest, a great white shark's ratio of rods to cones is comparable to that of human. With this in mind, how could a great white shark possibly mistake a human for a pinniped? Uh, and of course, they go and explain again. I talked about how the surfers, you know, that was one of the things that uh, shows like Shark Week and Discovery Channel try to uh, implicate that, you know, you're really not on the uh, dinner agenda for a shark. Now, here's some things that kind of support this, but I'm going to get a little more detail about that. Is more and more on YouTube, I'm finding uh, this guy called the uh, the Malibu something. I'm sorry if I don't have the total name right. Uh, but he he's but I've talked about this in my video about the shark attack in Australia. Is that this guy? purposely goes out with his drone uh, on, on you know, every day, puts it out over the water, the beach areas, and he's he's basically filming sharks that are swimming with, with swimmers, surfers, uh, paddle boarders, whatever. And there's been a couple times where he's, his drone underneath has, like, shark teeth. So he doesn't have a way to really voice anything. But it can beep. So as his drone's like flying around, and if he sees that there's a shark near somebody, and get a little too close, 
he will actually go on top of where the shark is currently swimming and basically beep. And if people are looking up and can see underneath, they'll see what you know his drone is and understand what he's doing. And it's actually worked. Like people have, you know, there was a couple of kayakers uh, who were basically just being spotted by a white shark that was swimming around them. Uh, they it had it hadn't attacked or anything, but the guy with the drone he went across and you know was beeping and staying right over where the shark was, so they knew exactly where it was located. And they banded together. They got closer, so they were a little larger than the shark so that the shark might be detoured, which it was. Um, but I've talked about how his way of doing this with the drone would be very beneficial to preventing shark attacks. It doesn't mean it's, it's going to knock it out 100%. But rather than have nets where it catches a lot of other marine life and kills them or collapses or doesn't even really detour anything because once you know the nets are fucked and other sharks get in... Uh, you know, I've thought in the past, you know, people have talked about the air bubbles. They've talked about uh, other methods of trying to keep sharks out of the, you know, certain area. Uh, but really, the drone is the best thing, really. It really is. And we have the technology now where we can do that. And it should be utilized more. I'm not surprised that it isn't at this point in stage uh, of, you know, trying to keep people safe on the beaches. Because rather than go out and just start, like, you know, killing all these sharks every time someone's attacked, it's better if we just have a, a monitoring system. But, uh, he, Graf goes on to say more, you know, pedipeds are solid from tip to snout to, to hind flippers. A human's image is a solid on top and divided into two elongated appendages at mid-body. Appendipeds moves throughout the water column are smooth, graceful, and sometimes swift, while a diver is slow, sluggish, and usually associated with bubbles. So, again, he's, he's pointing out the sharks aren't really as dumb or can't really be blind as everyone, as other people try to make it sound like. And it doesn't explain, like, why the guy, like, in, in, the, in Australia when I did that uh, little review about the shark attack on my YouTube channel, it doesn't explain why the shark came back and actually took the corpse away. Like, it, it already killed him. Because uh, it came up from underneath. It was like one of those, uh, you know, right from the bottom up, you know, uh, jaws, air, air jaws shit. You know, got him first. Uh, guy was probably alive for a little bit trying to swim away, but probably bled to death at some point. Uh, I know from one of the, I had two video clips, and the second one was showing basically an armless corpse floating in the water. And then about a few seconds later, you see this huge ass fin and tail, like, as the shark comes back and, and takes the corpse away, like it's it's gone, they can't find it. Uh, now there's a guy named Hal who has a YouTube channel called Shark Happens, and he actually has gone through and restarted to document shark attacks and verify stuff. Like we have the shark attack files that started years ago. He's actually kind of going through and re-verifying stuff and actually going back and determining whether it was a predation or not. Like, he's of the belief, like I am, that, and like Ralph is, that it's not a mistaken identity. Like, yes, there are times when a shark will attack somebody and something will deter it from, like, finishing the job, whether it doesn't want to deal with, like, a fighting and struggling human or 
I've, I've always believed the case is sometimes sharks will come and bite you and hope that you bleed to death so it can just come back and get the rest of you. Like, why? We, we've seen this actually happen with pinnipeds is where a white shark will surprise a pinniped, knock it out of the water, take a chunk out of it, and then, you know, the pinniped is kind of like wallowing in the water and bleeding to death. So then the shark just comes back when it's done moving and just take the rest of it. Because pinnipeds will fight. They will literally claw and bite at a shark that is trying to kill them. Like, that's, that's what they do in order to save themselves. So a shark is going to avoid any way to, like, not take any damage to the eyes or whatever. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not something that's, like, out of the ordinary for if a human is hit that the shark will kind of swim away and wait for it, whatever it is that it hit to bleed to death. And in the case of the straw and swimmer, that could be very much what happened. He got hit the first time, and I think the shark took a shot at his leg or something, but, you know, they said somebody, the guy filming was saying he was swimming away at one point, calling for help. Then the second part of the video that I talked about, he, he was already dead. Like, he bled to death while out in the water. There's nothing nobody can do. The waters were very choppy. The rescuers that finally got out there couldn't find his body, and that was probably like 10 or 15 minutes later after the attack. People on the beach, you know, who people were moaning and groaning at, like, why are you taking a video of this and not trying to help him? There's nothing nobody could have done because you really just put yourself at risk because the water is just too fucking choppy. Where he was, this guy left a certain part of the beach area to the deeper end in a more rocky area, which is perfect camouflage for a shark. Uh, it's not that sharks don't go where other beachgoers are, but if you're going to where the shark can actually dive underneath and get you from above, like straight up in the air, uh, you're just asking for trouble, dude, especially in Australian waters. It's ridiculous. I love the ocean. Don't get me wrong. I'm not swimming in it, though, because I just I know the risk. And call me scared or call me whatever. It's fine. I don't care. If I want to swim in water, I'll just go to a fucking pool. I'm not going to be eaten by something. <laughs> Chances of being hit by a shark are very rare. In fact, as I've talked about with these YouTube videos and this guy that does these drone things, many, many times white sharks are swimming with people and they don't even fucking know it. Uh, I've seen videos where uh, one couple of people were out in this water and there were people in this high hotel overlooking it. And they could literally see a hammerhead shark chasing a stingray in the water near them. The people in the water had no fucking clues there. Now, granted, the shark wasn't interested in them. It was interested in the stingray. Now, of course, the people in the hotel are, like, yelling at the people in the water, you know, get out, shark. And so they did. But uh, you see some of these other videos of these drones and, like, what they're catching. And... Uh, there are times that these sharks are like literally right underneath these guys on their surfboards and like they just don't know it. This doesn't mean that, you know, the shark doesn't prefer humans. What it, it, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean, one, it's not as hungry as it could be. It, it could have eaten already. Two, it, it's also an opportunist. So it's probably waiting uh, for the right moment to attack or even take the what they call the uh, exploratory bite to see what it is. Because uh, we, we've, we've seen sharks that have taken bites of 
boat propellers and other things like whatever the reasons are you know it, it could be anything but to write this off as like humans aren't on the menu is kind of ridiculous because we are flesh and blood and the fact that some sharks will literally consume us at any given time tells me that you know a shark may not prefer us but if it's got a free meal and we're slow as fucking water I mean really is it going to waste a lot of time chasing a fast seal in the water or come after us where we can only go a certain amount of speed <laughs> you know they're just opportunists and you know I still think like I said earlier that usually when a human is hit you know we're smart enough even in those circumstances, like, okay, I got to get the fuck out of the water. I just got hit. Don't know how bad yet, but I got hit. There's blood in this water. I got to get out of here. And, you know, whether you're being rescued by people trying to get you out or you're doing it on your own, the, re the real reality, I think, is that the shark is just waiting for you to bleed out. But, you know, whereas most of the time seals aren't going to make it to the shore or they're not smart enough to put two and two together, like, I got to get out of the water... Uh, you know, whatever the case, humans are the smartest creatures on the planet, supposedly. But it doesn't mean that we're still not on the menu. And, you know, these are carnivores, and they will eat on us if they feel the need to. So the idea that, yeah, it, it's a rare thing to happen, I, I think it's really just attributed to the fact that sharks do prefer certain types of food. And even though... They may not even know who we are in terms of, like, what species we are when we're in the water, which is why a lot of times they're like, hmm, what's this foot? Let me uh, let me just nibble on this and see if it's any good. Uh, or if it's just deciding, okay, I'm going to surprise attack this, this guy and I'm going to take him down. Whether he makes it or not, it's not my business. I just need to eat. So, uh, you know... So, like I said, uh, if you go on sharklab-malta.org, uh, he has different interviews, and Ralph uh, S. Collier is the one where this particular discussion happens, and it's it's very key, I think. And he goes into a, a pretty good, uh, you know, some more areas, like additional on, and, uh, analysis of the mistaken identity motivation of great white shark attacks revolves around inanimate objects. If we assume great white sharks only bite things that resemble a natural prey, why do they attack boats? It is not due to uh, galvanic action with metal plates on the bottom of boats. Boats are usually struck violently by great white shark moving swiftly through the water. Because the electrical field emitted by such galvanic action is only detectable by the shark when within a meter of the plate, this minute electrical field could not detectable or this could not trigger an attack that was initiated or commenced many meters further away. In addition to boats. What natural prey does a crab trap buoy represent to a great white shark? The buoys are shaped like a cruise missile floating at the surface. They are colored blue and yellow. Great white sharks see color and are 14 inches in length and 18 inches in diameter. I am unaware of any natural great white shark prey that resembles a crab trap buoy. <laughs> so he's again you know, debunking the fact that sharks have poor vision or our mistaken identity there it's 
you know, they test things because they want to see if it's edible, and it's why sometimes in Tiger Shark we find, like, license plates and everything else. So, you know, they're garbage cans in some cases. Uh, bull sharks and tiger sharks will eat just about anything. Great whites, if they're big enough, will certainly eat a human whole. I, I've seen, if you pay attention to sharks at all, sharks like uh, Deep Blue is fucking, it literally can swallow you whole almost. Like, it's that big. Like, you wouldn't believe it. For a female shark, it's huge. Uh, I've seen people touch it, you know, divers that were, like, you know, next to it. And I'm just like, you're nuts. I mean, I get it. You know, you think you can defy fate or whatever. But one day, that could shark could just very well turn on you and take you out. And I won't feel sorry for you when it does. That's that's the fun thing about it. Like, I just, I don't care about that. Like, I love learning about sharks. I love that people want to research and protect them. But it's like, you got to have common sense, dude. Common sense. And some of these people are more like thrill seekers, in my opinion, rather than actual researchers and scientists. Like, they'd rather just prove that they can be gutsy and swim with sharks and you know just like that one dude in shark week some years ago uh they were in knee deep water and he was doing an interview and he was they were surrounded by like eight foot tiger uh, bull sharks well one of the bull sharks took out his calf and he survived obviously but he had just got done saying see we can stand here and they're not doing a fucking thing well so much for that right so you know you can only test fate so much before it actually bites you in the ass no pun intended all right, get back into our music. Guterectomy, brand new stuff. This is called Slaves to Greed.
trailer for the spine of night and uh i came across this kind of by accident really uh, i mean obviously um, i'm a shutter subscriber and i check every week to see what new content they have and they uh they actually have like a, a new movie on there it's for this year but this uh film is an animation that's a lot like, in terms of how it's put together, a lot like, do you remember the animation movie The Hobbit or Heavy Metal, uh, Fire and Ice? It's got like a lot of that in it. Um, it has uh, voice actors of Lucy Lawless from Xena and uh, Patton Oswalt. <clears throat> and... Uh, Basically, the premise is, where is it in here? Uh, it tells me exactly what I'm looking for. Basically, it, it's almost like heavy metal in a sense. You've got this, what we call the, uh, it's like a blue lotus flower, but, you know, it can be gathered up together and it, it grants you certain powers. And uh, it reminded me a lot of the green orb from heavy metal because... It takes you through time, this particular movie. So it starts out where you have Lucy Laws playing this character, the Swamp Witch, who actually has the power of the, the Blue Lotus. And she can do certain things, but another guy uh, basically kills her or stabs her to the point that he takes it from her. 
and he starts becoming like this evil dude throughout time who's doing these evil things and corrupting people and it, it again reminds me of that green orb from heavy metal where they were kind of doing the same thing going through time and uh, showing what it had its effect on humanity and basically this guy here uh, I think he's called mongrel I'm not sure I have to double check that but he uh he has this power and at first you know at one point he's a captive for these clerics of this like almost like a church and uh you know again there's like he's like i need more blood for this uh he's willing to share the power with the head cleric who's like power hungry uh that backfires on him obviously he always does when they try to do uh you know gain power like that but uh but then like each segment even though it doesn't really tell you like chapter two or chapter three but you go through each segment and like there's new heroes so in the first one we're dealing with the swamp witch second one we are dealing with these star-crossed lovers together uh fighting this evil and then in the third act uh there's like this trio of bird people even though they're not birds but they they have like these masks on like beaks and have like what you would call uh, gliders so like they jump in the air they can glide with them they call them uh, basically assassins. So they're they're also part of the ones that are trying to fight this evil, and that's just kind of how it is. And it just reminds me a lot of heavy metal in that way. Most people, when they're doing reviews, are trying to compare it to Fire and Ice. I think it's more just to do with like the medieval part of it all, because it is done during medieval medieval times. It's not modern uh, like heavy metal was. You know, heavy metal had like spaceships and you know, more modern stuff. Plus, the soundtrack for Heavy Metal is much better than this one. Uh, this one isn't really a rock and roll soundtrack, it, but it does have good music, obviously. Um, you know, some people are hot and cold with this. Uh, it's more for nostalgic purposes in terms of how it's shot. That's why it kind of caught me off guard. Uh, it's, it's not as good as Heavy Metal, as I said, or even good as The Hobbit. Um... I do consider it actually better than Fire and Ice. I've seen Fire and Ice. I didn't think Fire and Ice was all that great. But it just pays so much homage to that stuff in terms of how it's designed that uh, I couldn't help not liking it to some degree. So it's still a decent movie if you want to check it on a shutter. Uh, I'm not going to hold you up too much with this. Um, it is animated, but like I said, it's really done kind of well. You do see... It, it, this is, again, another thing pointing back to heavy metal is like you know a little bit of nudity uh you see some tits some some twang you see some ding dong nothing overly graphic obviously the, the gore scenes are great that's again you see people being split in half and shit so that's really cool so i don't know if you guys saw um spear and fang on adults uh, swim like the dinosaur and the caveman guy that worked together has a lot of that kind of gore going on in it so it's pretty fucking cool Check it out. It's only like an hour and 30 or 40 minutes, but it's cool as shit. All right. Back into our music. A couple of tracks from Metal Message and Vlad. Um, got some dark secret here. Kicking off with Extremist.
getting ready to end this one. And I thought I'd thank everyone for tuning in, checking it out. Currently working on playlist for Rockin' a Hard Place Volume 4. Not sure when I'm going to get that out yet. I've got three of them out there right now. Uh, seem to be a pretty big hit, which is good. I'm glad that people are enjoying the uh, the rock version of stuff that they like. Uh, if you're not too much into the heavier stuff. But uh, try to get as much shit out there and content for you as I can. Neko says hello to everyone that's still listening to the podcast. And she misses everybody. And uh, she can't wait to get back and get back on air. Uh, one last track from you, uh, for you, by a band called the the Slog, the Slug. I, I'm not really Sean from Sean's the one who sent me the tracks uh, from the band, I believe. Uh, S L U A G H. I'm not sure how to really pronounce that. Listening to their music sounds a little bit like uh, atmospheric black metal in some ways, but it's also symphonic. Uh, the first thing that came to mind was Appalachian Winter uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, the one-man project from there. It has a very similar vibe. It's like it's got like this sense of epicness with the keyboards and the uh, symphonic parts of it. But from what I am looking on their Bandcamp page, because um, it doesn't tell me any more information than just the music. Uh, apparently, this is this is off a of part two of what they call the. Uh, Innovate Creatures. This is two. And apparently this one is more orchestral and symphonic compared to the first one, which I have to go check out at some point. So I'm not sure how different they are, but uh, I really like what's on this particular part, uh, part two. Uh, so you guys did a really good job with this in terms of adding the orchestra and symphonic part of it all, because it really reminded me of some of the Appalachian Winter stuff. So... Uh, I really dig that project uh, coming out of Pennsylvania. So, good job, guys. I, the track that I chose for you all to close us out is called Hemispheres. And uh, I'll see you next time, all. Take care of yourselves. <coughs>